Welcome back to The Land of Desire, a podcast on French history and culture. Last week, we kicked off a series on the three incredible men named Alexandre Dumas, a general, an author, and a playwright. In part one, we followed the improbable life of Thomas-Alexandre Dumas, David de la Payetterie, the son of a black slave and a white aristocrat, who left behind a childhood in Saint-Domingue, aka modern-day Haiti, to rise to the highest ranks of the French Revolutionary Army. When we last left off, the triumphant Alexandre Dumas was on top of the world, literally, having defended Republican France from the Austrians at the top of the Alps. By the age of only 31, Alexandre Dumas was the general-in-chief of a French army, a national hero, a happy husband and father, and the physical embodiment of the French Revolution's racial progress. But if you think that's enough to stay in the revolution's good graces, think again. Until now, Alexandre Dumas' life represented the possibility and the promise of the French Revolution and its guarantee of equality without a king. But soon, Alexandre Dumas' life would mirror the despotism, arrogance, and cruelty of a new world and a new leader. In June 1794, mere months after his victory in the Alps, Alex received the letter dreaded by every citizen of revolutionary France, a summons to the Committee for Public Safety. For those who need to brush up on their revolutionary history, the Committee for Public Safety were the bloodthirsty nutjobs in charge of deciding who went to the guillotine, which is to say, everybody. By that point, the Committee for Public Safety executed over 30 people per day, with an acquittal rate of about 20%. Alex Dumas' supposed crime? Well, luckily, he never got the chance to find out. Upon receiving the summons, Alex sat down at his writing desk to compose his reply. I have received, citizens, your letter. I will leave for Paris immediately, in accordance with the committee's orders. One can only assume that Alex paused at this point to drink a gulp of whiskey. Then, coming to his senses, Alex crossed out the draft and started again. I have received, citizens, your letter. I anticipate that I will only be able to leave around July 8th. It was the savviest move of his life. A few days later, the revolution consumed itself, and after years of insanity and irrational bloodshed, the Committee for Public Safety's own number came up. By the time that Alexandre Dumas slowly crawled his way into Paris, the guillotine had just claimed the Committee for Public Safety for itself. The French Revolution was spinning out of control. The new leaders of the French Revolution took one look at the distinguished, rational, sane General Dumas and sent him to go reform some of France's most useless troops out on the front lines. It was an exercise in futility. 
General Dumas didn't see any kind of revolutionary spirit in these new troops, just a commitment to mass looting and destruction. His troops weren't the only ones losing interest in the revolution. To his relief, General Dumas was transferred and sent into the countryside to put down a massive rebellion. Meanwhile, as General Dumas tried to put down the rural rebellion, pro-monarchists took one look at Paris and they realized, while the cat's away, the mouse will play. And at the end of 1795, over 30,000 pro-monarchists marched into the capital, which had only about 6,000 French soldiers left to defend it. The guy in charge of Paris at the time, the head of the Army of the Interior, was new at his job and he needed to think fast. Almost all of his French generals were scattered across the countryside at the moment, putting down all those rural uprisings. The director wrote to Alexandre Dumas, asking him to return to Paris immediately. But Dumas was just too far away. There's no way he would have arrived in time. Instead, the head of the Army of the Interior knew about a little-known general who happened to live within the city limits. A rising star with a reputation for bold thinking. When this general had been assigned to put down the rural rebellions like everybody else, he'd figured there'd be little opportunity for glory out in the sticks, so he wriggled his way out of it and stayed behind in Paris, waiting for a better opportunity. After receiving the director's letter, the young general knew his opportunity had arrived. With the entire leadership of the French Revolution watching from behind closed fingers within their barricaded houses, this young general did what no one else had been prepared to do, and he turned the army's artillery on its own people. As you might expect, when a crowd of people suddenly faces an exploding cannon, the mob dissipated. The general restored order in Paris. His actions that day were unorthodox, effective, and brutal. A few weeks later, when the French government decided it was time to liberate Italy, they decided to call on the services of this new friend, Napoleon Bonaparte. The French Revolution wasn't merely a domestic conflict. It was a political uprising which struck fear into the hearts of kings everywhere. France was under attack from the rest of Europe, some of whom wanted to seize this moment of weakness to conquer France, and some of whom were terrified that revolutionary ideals were going to spill over into their own country. Which king's head would be next? These fears were not just empty paranoia. Leaders of revolutionary France explicitly intended to help revolutionaries all across Europe rise up and throw off their own leaders. Revolutionary leaders assumed that enormous portions of the population would welcome a movement which offered fair representation, the end of feudalism, and for many, the promise of racial equality. Following the bloodshed of the Committee for Public Safety, a new government formed. 
the government was composed of two legislative bodies called the Council of 500 and the Council of Ancients, all led by a five-man committee named the Directory. Don't worry, you don't need to remember all of that, we will not spend a lot of time in this episode discussing the Directory, but here's something worth noting. At least 12 members of the Directory were mixed race or black. In fact, in 1790, the Directory founded the National Colonial Institute, an elite academy which admitted students of all races. At a time when black people in many countries weren't legally allowed to learn to read, the Colonial Institute accepted the sons of slaves and mixed-race Frenchmen, boys like Alexandre Dumas. The Institute offered six scholarships each year, which many black students used to acquire an elite education. Not only black students from within France, but also black students from the West Indies, Egypt, and East Africa were able to take advantage of these scholarships. Alexandre Dumas, an elite, mixed-race man of considerable reputation, would have assumed that any future sons of his might one day attend the Colonial Institute as preparation for a glorious future. With this knowledge of the revolution's transformative progress in his own homeland, Alexandre Dumas turned his sights towards Italy, begging, everyone assumed, to be liberated. For this next assignment, Alexandre Dumas would serve under the leadership of that unnerving young general, Napoleon Bonaparte. In order to free the Italians, however, France would first have to defeat their occupying soldiers, the Austrians. It was never going to work. Napoleon Bonaparte and Alexandre Dumas were never going to get along, in part because Napoleon Bonaparte didn't get along with anybody. Worse, as one witness wrote, men from every class who were able to catch sight of General Bonaparte were struck by how short and how skinny he was. The one among our generals whose appearance struck them even more was Dumas. Man of color and by his figure looking like a centaur, when they saw him ride his horse over the trenches, all of them believed that he was the leader of the expedition. Well, Napoleon Bonaparte held a PhD in pettiness, and he was not about to be upstaged. Throughout the Italian campaign, Napoleon bristled every time Alexandre Dumas showed up in the spotlight. When he'd give out tokens of appreciation to loyal fans, Napoleon would somehow manage to leave Alexandre Dumas off of his gift list. When Napoleon would send out itemized lists of brave actions committed by his troops which deserved greater glory, General Dumas' name somehow never made it onto the list. Finally, after a particularly spectacular performance went unrecognized, Alexandre Dumas lost his cool. Having single-handedly prevented two halves of the Austrian army from reuniting, having charged headfirst into battle on not one, not two, but three different horses, mowing down the enemy without a scratch, General Dumas' heroics were ignored. At that moment, General Dumas' savvy finally failed him and he made a decision which literally anyone, anywhere, would call a bad idea. 
Here is the letter written by Alexandre Dumas to Napoleon Bonaparte in its entirety. If there are children listening, tell them to cover their ears for the next 30 seconds. General, I have learned that the jackass whose business it is to report to you upon the Battle of the 27th stated that I stayed in observation throughout that battle. I don't wish any such observation on him since he would have shit in his pants. Salute and Brotherhood, Alex Dumas. This is how, a few months later, the hero of the Army of the Alps found himself stranded on a tiny bridge in the middle of nowhere in Italy. General Dumas, once the leader of 10,000 men, had insulted his boss and now found himself alone on the Isaac River in the Italian mountainside podunk called Clausen. He had a small group of men crouched on the ground ducking bullets behind him and an entire squadron of Austrian soldiers in front of him. The general was demoralized, demoted, and depressed. While he and his small band of men had been scoping out the banks of the Isaac River earlier that week, General Dumas received a letter bearing terrible news from home. Writing to his wife, he begged for confirmation of his worst nightmare. You have told me about an event that tears away half of my existence, and I think I have been confirmed in my fear that something even more awful has happened. I will not live in peace until I receive a letter from you that tells me the truth. Soon, General Dumas' worst fears were confirmed. His beloved daughter, Louise, was dead. Now, demoted down the military ranks, grieving the loss of his daughter, Alex Dumas stood alone on the bridge, sword in hand. Fueled by grief, Alexandre Dumas charged ahead. Slashing his sword to and fro, bullets flew around the general. With only his trusty aide at his side, General Dumas crossed to the other side of the bridge and engaged the Austrians in hand-to-hand -hand combat to give their fellow Frenchmen the opportunity to cross the bridge. The Austrians fought on in amazement. This impossible man, who had stalked them all the way across Italy, seemed impervious to death. Over and over he rose up again. De Schwarzteufel, they called him, the Black Devil. As his aide recalled, Dumas would lift his saber as a thresher lifts his flail, and each time the sword was lowered, a man fell. General Dumas single-handedly held back the Austrians long enough for French reinforcements to cross the bridge and chase the Austrians all the way over the border. By the end of the battle, France had taken 1,500 Austrian soldiers prisoner, and General Dumas had taken three wounds and seven bullet holes in his coat. Alex later wrote to his wife that the victory was necessary to dissipate a little the stinging grief of the irreparable loss which I had of my unfortunate Louise. It was also necessary for his rehabilitation in the eyes of his boss. At this moment, Napoleon Bonaparte chose to forgive Alexandre Dumas, presenting him with two ceremonial pistols. Thanks to General Dumas' victory, Napoleon was able to force Austria to sign a humiliating peace treaty before the year was over. 
back in Napoleon's good graces, Alexandre Dumas' demotion ended. For three months, Alexandre Dumas returned home to his wife and his remaining daughter. After this brief rest, he received his newest assignment. Kind of. Reporting for duty in the southern city of Toulon, Alexandre Dumas had no idea where he was going. But he wasn't going there alone. Surrounded on the docks by 54,000 men and 1,200 horses, the journey would be epic. But where would it lead? For over a month, the men sailed across the Mediterranean, headed on an unknown mission, and Dumas had no idea what he was doing. Not until June 23rd did Napoleon finally reveal his grand plan. Alexandre Dumas would be the supreme cavalry commander of the Army of the Orient, and through his command, Napoleon Bonaparte was going to conquer Egypt. Egypt, the site of so many oriental fantasies, a land filled with spices and jewels and riches in the French imagination, a land just begging to be conquered, conquered in part by Alexandre Dumas and his cavalry. The story of the French campaign in Egypt is way too long to tell here. But if you're sitting there thinking, I don't remember Napoleon Bonaparte ruling Egypt, well. As it turns out, the Mediterranean Sea is really hard to cross with horses, and the Egyptian desert is impossible to cross without horses. By the time France's army landed on the beach outside Alexandria, the handful of remaining horses at the cavalry's disposal were put to work dragging cannons onto the beach. This kind of poor planning and mismanagement really set the stage for what would soon become a miserable, useless campaign. Instead of trying to capture the experience in my own words, I will share those of a French general making the unhappy slog from the shores to Alexandria. As he wrote, a barren desert, naked as your hand. Every dozen miles, you run into a bad well of bitter, salty water. Imagine an army forced to cross these arid plains with no escape from their unbearable heat. Dressed in wool and bearing five days of supplies on his back, after an hour's march, the soldier is overcome by the heat and the weight he carries. Soon, soldiers began suffering from a mysterious condition which rendered them blind. As General Dumas himself wrote, you cannot imagine the fatigue of the marches, most of the time without food, forced to glean what the preceding divisions had left behind in the horrible villages they had pillaged. French troops were unprepared, poorly supplied, hungry, and desperate. Soon, they began looting the territories they entered. The liberators of the East were ransacking Egypt. Alex was miserable. Writing to his wife one night, he said, Be happy if it is possible for you, because for me, all pleasures have died here, unless I can one day see France again. I deeply desire to tell you everything that is in my heart, but one must be silent and choke on one's pain. Alas, 
Alexandre Dumas wasn't silent enough. One hot night, as he sat around in a tent with the other generals, General Dumas once again made the unwise move of badmouthing his boss. Decades later, writing his memoirs from exile on St. Helena, Chief Pettiness Officer Napoleon Bonaparte would still remember storming into Dumas' tent to warn him. You have preached sedition. Beware that I don't fulfill my duty, for your six feet and one inch would not prevent you from being shot in two hours. Luckily, Bonaparte soon changed his mind about performing this or any other duty during his failed campaign, because one night, while the men were asleep, Napoleon Bonaparte gave up on his own campaign. The general skipped town and abandoned his men in the desert, sailing back across the sea to France. Desperate to escape the heat, the disease, and locals who did not exactly greet them as liberators, only a few months after receiving his most prestigious command, Alex Dumas found himself bailing out of Egypt at the 11th hour on a leaky fishing boat. Before climbing on board, Alex had written his wife to say, I have decided to return, my beloved, to France. I hope to follow this letter very closely. It was the last anyone would hear of Alex Dumas for the next two years. Having fled Egypt in the middle of the night, Alex's ship turned out to be made of Swiss cheese, as the boat filled with water, crewmen desperately tossed off everything they could. Food, cannonballs, anchors, 4,000 pounds of General Dumas' coffee, even horses. It wasn't enough. In the end, only a plucky old local sailor saved the lives of everyone on board by diving underwater to plug the ship's holes from the outside. This crazy bold move was enough to keep the boat afloat but not enough to get them home. Instead, the ship carrying Alex Dumas finally made it to shore outside the city of Taranto, Italy. Unfortunately, Taranto had just fallen into the hands of pro-monarchists who did not take too kindly to the idea of French revolutionaries. General Alexandre Dumas demanded to speak with someone in charge. He received silence. After receiving no response, it was with some surprise that General Dumas suddenly received a visit from the Crown Prince Francis, son of the King of Naples. The prince was a little funny. After asking a few cursory questions of Dumas and refusing to answer any questions in return, the Crown Prince promptly turned around and left. If Dumas pinned any hopes on the Crown Prince, it was a mistake, because as it turns out, Dumas hadn't actually met the crown prince at all, but an elaborate, eccentric imposter named Bocca Chiampi, who had spent the year traveling all over the Italian countryside, doling out sage royal commands. I cannot make this up. The imperial impersonator managed to fire local officials, hire local officials, raise taxes, and spend taxes. How? Nah, forget it, Alex. This is Italy town. As luck would have it, the crown prince turned out to be useful to General Dumas after all. Shortly after his visit with the unlucky prisoner, Bocca Chiampi managed to get himself caught by the French. 
The powers that be expressed interest in a trade. You give us Book of Chiampi, and we'll give you back your general. Oops! As it turns out, the French didn't actually capture Boca Chiampi. They killed him. Now that any idea of a trade flew out the window, General Dumas received an official notification. He was a prisoner. By May 1799, exactly one year after setting sail from France, General Dumas now lived in a stone cell, sleeping on a bed of straw. Once per day, he could take a brief walk around the courtyard. Every single day, when a jailer brought him his meal, General Dumas demanded to speak with someone in charge. His own strength left him. After arriving in Toronto, General Dumas suffered a strange paralysis in his face. In the first few weeks of his imprisonment, a doctor visited General Dumas in his cell. But one morning, Having drunk a glass of wine on the doctor's orders, General Dumas collapsed onto the floor, clutching his stomach in agony. Back home, Marie-Louise wrote panicked letters to anyone who might be able to help. For those of you who listened to my series on Alfred Dreyfus, the idea of a wife pleading for help on behalf of her unjustly imprisoned husband might sound familiar. Yet, while Alfred Dreyfus was considered an enemy of the state by those in charge, Alexandre Dumas was a national hero. Did no one care that the French Superman was wasting away in an Italian prison? The answer is no, nobody cared because the French Revolution was collapsing. At long last, Europe was united against the threat of pesky French revolutionary ideals. England, Russia, Austria, Portugal, Turkey, and Naples all joined forces against the French, driving them out of the Middle East, out of Italy, out of any strongholds of Republican fervor. On the one hand, the coalition swept pillaging French soldiers out of Alexandria. Yay! On the other hand, these counter-revolutionary armies also swept away French revolutionary ideals. After the French left, the locals started doing things like massacring Jews, building ghettos, murdering anyone suspected of wanting a world without kings. In the midst of this chaos and collapse, no one remembered the general wasting away in enemy territory. Instead, everyone was packing up their most treasured possessions and looking for a way out. Once again, the army was spread too thin along its borders, and Paris was looking vulnerable. The streets filled with demonstrators, the countryside started burning, and everyone in charge was in hiding. That is, until October 9th, when a ship reached the shores of Fréjus in southeastern France. Napoleon Bonaparte was back. By the time he made it to the shambles that was Paris, Napoleon had everything planned for his attack. While the Council of 500 assembled in their usual meeting place, Napoleon surrounded the building with 5,000 troops. Napoleon's younger brother, Lucien, president of the Council of 500, he took charge, mounting onto a horse and delivering a speech about troops rising in rebellion against the council. 
calling on the troops to liberate France, Lucien called out, Vive le général! Vive le président! and charged his way inside, flanked by the cavalry. The Council of 500 did exactly what I would do in such a situation, and they freaked out, lost it, and tried to jump out the windows. By 3 a.m. that night, the Republic of France was dead, and the inept, sometimes ruthless, but nevertheless democratic government of the French Revolution was replaced by something called a consul, Napoleon Bonaparte. The French Revolution was over. While Napoleon Bonaparte manipulated his way to the top, Alexandre Dumas lay groaning on the floor of his cell in a puddle of his own vomit. A servant found the general whimpering in the dark and gently fed him spoonfuls of olive oil and lemon juice, which, shall we say, cleaned out his system. It probably saved his life. When a physician finally arrived, General Dumas recognized the man. It was the same man who had been treating him for the paralysis in his face. At that moment, as he realized the doctor was clearly shocked to find this particular prisoner still alive, Alexandre Dumas realized he was being poisoned. Over the next few weeks, Alex Dumas avoided anything his doctor prescribed, instead drinking olive oil and lemon juice to make sure any poison he ingested made its way out again. One day, while inspecting the cell of another French general who'd been taken captive, Dumas picked up the general's snuff box. He noticed that mixed in with the snuff was a metallic powder so corrosive it had eaten several holes in the box. Filled with paranoia, General Dumas' health continued to deteriorate until he was blind in one eye, deaf in one ear, and paralyzed in his cheeks. One day, an underground Republican society managed to slip a copy of a medicinal book into Dumas' cell. Paging through it, Dumas noticed that someone had underlined a passage on poison. Later that night, these groups began sneaking medicinal herbs in through Dumas' cell window on a string. This brave, anonymous group of underground revolutionaries probably saved the general's life. Meanwhile, Napoleon Bonaparte was whipping the French army back into shape. News traveled slowly in the 18th century, and news of Bonaparte's colossal failure in Egypt had not yet reached Parisian ears. Once again, Napoleon recognized an opportunity to fix his reputation by pushing his way back into Italy, back, back, and back. All across Europe, armies began falling against the new consul's military strategies. By December 1800, a year and a half after Alexandre Dumas washed up on Italian shores, the King of Naples surrendered to Napoleon's army. As part of the peace treaty, France demanded the release of all her prisoners of war. So at age 39, a prematurely aged Alexandre Dumas staggered out of prison. He wore fresh clothes, but he was partly blind and deaf, and he limped his way to the boat that would take him home. In June 1801, Alexandre Dumas returned to France. Immediately, Alexandre sat down at a desk and he wrote his wife. 
Refusing to discuss his imprisonment and near-death experiences with her, Alex insisted, I don't want to bring pain to your heart that is wounded enough by its long privations. I hope to bring your rare, precious spirit the healing balm of my consolation within the month. Two years after leaving Egypt, Alexandre Dumas was finally home. What he didn't yet realize was that after a year of rule under Napoleon Bonaparte, the France that Alexandre Dumas called home was now unrecognizable. Almost immediately after taking power, Napoleon set in place a series of laws we now call the Napoleonic Code, which pay lip service to the idea of universal equality and opportunities based on merit. Yet, when it came to the colonies, as Napoleon put it, the regime of the French colonies is to be determined by special laws. In other words, after years of revolutionarily-minded slaves rising up to throw off their chains, the planters of Saint-Domingue, men like Alex Dumas' father and uncle, begged Napoleon for the return of slavery. On Christmas Day, Napoleon reminded the revolutionarily-minded people of Saint-Domingue that the French people alone recognize your liberty and your equal rights. Five days later, Napoleon began planning an invasion, which would send nearly 40,000 French soldiers to retake the island from the hands of its revolutionary ex-slave leaders. One of these leaders, General Toussaint Louverture, had two young sons living in Paris. Just as Alexandre Dumas had done when he was a young man, these two young black men took advantage of unheard-of opportunities, studying at university and joining the military. Napoleon summoned both boys before him and reassured the two of them, saying, Do not believe that it is the intention of France to carry war into Saint-Domingue, and promptly ushered both boys onto a boat for Saint-Domingue. There, the two boys were held hostage in an attempt to lure their father out into the open. After General Louverture stumbled into an ambush, he was dragged back to Paris in chains, where a few months later, in a freezing cell, he died. Meanwhile, back in Saint-Domingue, any black officers of color over the rank of captain were to be killed or captured and deported to France. Soldiers who weren't raped and murdered were secretly sold back into slavery. Back in Paris, life for black and mixed-race French citizens grew steadily worse. The Colonial Institute, that elite academy open to exceptional students of any race, suddenly announced that the government would no longer offer scholarships to black students, having, quote, done too much for the likes of them already. The 10-year-old son of another general in Saint-Domingue found himself locked out beyond the school gates, where he was eventually forced into an orphanage. The young boy traveled to Paris in search of an education which would open doors for the rest of his life. Instead, in the corner of a miserable, downtrodden orphanage, he died at the age of 12. 
striking terror into the hearts of black and mixed-race men everywhere, Napoleon decreed without warning that, in spite of all previous laws, the colonies may or may not be reopened to slavery. Meanwhile, all officers and soldiers of color who had retired or been discharged from the army were now banned from Paris and its suburbs. Napoleon Bonaparte, the man who had spent years fighting at the head of armies containing these brave soldiers, depending on their courage and sacrifice to win battles and glory for himself, now betrayed them completely. Reviving the old Code Noir laws, black men and men of color were now banned from entering France herself. Soon, blacks and whites were forbidden to marry. The world which had produced Alexandre Dumas fell away, doomed by a dictator who had relied on a mixed-race man to reach power in the first place. Alexandre Dumas, shattered from his imprisonment, faced a Paris which grew increasingly hostile. He received no back pay for all the years he spent in the Italian prison, so his family teetered on the brink of starvation. Governed by new racial laws, the general had to beg for permission to stay in his own home, close as it was to forbidden Paris. Just a few years after his dramatic victory on the bridge at Clausen, the former general-in-chief of the French cavalry found himself begging the military for a pension, a new assignment, any assignment, anything that would allow him to feed his family. For it was during this age of darkness, when one of France's greatest heroes found himself betrayed and oppressed by one he once considered an equal, it was at this time that Marie-Louise Dumas gave birth to her third and final child. He was named for his father, Alexandre Dumas. Over the next few years, General Dumas' greatest and sometimes only delight took the form of baby Alex. Constantly reasserting his willingness to serve in the military again, no one would offer General Dumas a new assignment, and no one would offer him a retirement pension either. The smiling young boy wasn't aware of his parents' poverty, of course, but after 1805, even the toddler noticed his father's health had taken a turn for the worst. As baby Alex would recall in his memoirs so many years later, Soon after, my father grew weaker, went out less often, rarely mounted a horse, stayed more in his room, took me on his knees with greater sadness. This titan of a man, this superhero of revolutionary France, found himself betrayed, broke, bedridden with stomach cancer. Must a general who at 35 was at the head of three armies die at 40 in his bed like a coward? Oh my God, my God, what have I done that you should condemn me so young to leave my wife and children? In the middle of the night, on February 26, 1806, General Thomas Alexandre Dumas David de la Payetterie, son of an aristocrat, son of a slave, hero of the French Revolution, general-in-chief of the French cavalry, died. From Marie-Louise and baby Alex, 
the general's death was a disaster. Never forget, Napoleon Bonaparte's pettiness knew no bounds. Having destroyed the hopes and dreams of his former rival, he now crushed his former rival's wife and children. Marie-Louise was denied a widow's pension, forcing her to work in a tobacco shop. Meanwhile, baby Alex cried out for his beloved father. I adored my father, he would write in his memoirs. Even today, the memory of my father, in every detail of his body, in every feature of his face, is as present to me as if I had lost him yesterday. No matter what the reasons, I love him today with a love as tender, as deep, and as real as if he had watched over my youth and I had had the happiness to go from childhood to manhood, leading on his powerful arm. Instead, Alexandre Dumas would make his way alone, denied every opportunity available to mixed-race men only a generation earlier. Of all the indignities he suffered, none was worse for Alexandre Dumas than his lack of education. Only 20 years after the founding of the National Colonial Institute, the son of a mixed-race general could not gain admission to a secondary school. Any favor Alex and his mother called in, Napoleon quietly denied. Any plea they issued, Napoleon quietly ignored. Ten years after his campaign in Egypt, Napoleon commissioned a painting of the Charge of Cairo, a heroic moment in which General Dumas ran down the army on horseback. When the painting was unveiled, there had been a slight alteration. Now, the man on horseback was white. The consul, on his way to becoming an emperor, forbade anyone to speak of Alexandre Dumas, and he did everything he could to erase his memory from the earth. Under Napoleon's rule, the name of Alexandre Dumas faded away. What Napoleon did not predict was that only a few years later, the name Alexandre Dumas would rise again. And this time, it would be impossible to forget. Thanks for listening to The Land of Desire. If you haven't done so already, visit the website at www.thelandofdesire.com to find out more about today's episode. You can also like us on Facebook and add us on Twitter. If you have two minutes this week, please rate and review the show on iTunes. It helps attract new listeners to the show. And please join us in two weeks for the next episode in our series on the three Alexandres Dumas. Until then, au revoir!